Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Mitch Jezerich, and I'm the host of Letters and Politics on KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley, though we are still in our COVID protocols, and I'm actually joining you from my apartment in downtown Oakland. I am very excited to be moderating today's program with David K. Johnston. David K. Johnston is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, the co-founder of DCReport.org, and author of the book, The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. David K. Johnston is an investigative journalist and author. He's a specialist in economics and tax issues, and he's winner of the 2001 Pulitzer Prize for Beat Reporting. In his new book, The, Be- the Big Cheat, he dives into the world of the Trump family, and he asks questions that many want answers to. We'll be discussing a lot in our next hour, and I do want to ask David some of your questions as well. So if you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and I will be getting to them later in the hour. David K. Johnson, great to see you, sir. Thank you for participating in this with us today. Well, Mitch, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be back at the Commonwealth Club in the city where I was born. Now, this is your third book about Donald Trump. You have been covering Donald Trump for a good long time. Can you tell me about some of that history? Sure. Um, I was the first journalist to seriously investigate the LAPD when I was at the LA Times in the early 80s and ruined my career because the paper didn't want to know what we all know about how awful that place is. So I left and went to Atlantic City for the Philadelphia Inquirer because I believed casino gaming, or gambling as I prefer to call it, was about to spread all across America because of a Supreme Court decision. And I wrote a book called uh, Temples of Chance, much of which is about Donald Trump's incompetence in the casino business and dishonesty, and accurately predicted the spread of casino gaming. So I met Donald in 1988, uh, quickly sized him up as a P.T. Barnum, but with a nasty edge, and soon began documenting uh, his lying, his dishonesty, and his own executives were among my best sources. Some of his biggest gamblers were good sources of mine. And I recognized that Donald was someone who, like Daryl Gates, the L.A. police chief, uh, Baron Hilton, the hotelier who tried to steal almost a billion dollars from starving children in a charity. Uh, The Keck brothers is in the telescope who tried to do something similar. Uh, And Jack Welch at General Electric, among others, that these were people who would continue to be important in American society. And I began studying them, building files on them, tracking them, writing about them. And I've stuck with Donald all the way along. He calls me, by the way, the weird dude. (laughs) When did he call you that? Uh, It's on the back cover of the book. It was right after I got his 2005 income tax return in the mail. And I showed that uh, on the regular income tax, he paid a lower rate on an income of about $3 million a week than Americans who made $300 a week paid. Uh, And... uh, Uh, He paid an additional tax, but he got it back later. That's the excuse he's used to hide his tax returns from the American public. It was over the refund of the rest of the tax he paid called the alternative minimum tax. 
When did you get this this tax form, though? Was this when everyone else was trying to get it around the presidency or? No, no, no. Earlier. This came, I we published that in at the news service I run, DC Report, in uh, March of 2017, right after he took office. Uh, I then went on Rachel Maddow's show. A lot of people wrongly attribute the, the tax return to her. She very carefully said nine times, we just have David as a guest. He's the one who got the tax return. And um, uh, that's up until the New York Times got 18 bankers boxes of old Trump materials that they very, very solidly reported on and established beyond any doubt Donald's tax cheat. Uh, that was the only tax return we'd ever seen. We'd seen tax information. And of course, in the summer of 2016, during the campaign, I broke the story that Donald had had two tax fraud trials. They were civil, not criminal fraud. He lost both of them. Uh, and what he did was he forged his own tax return. His his own lawyer and accountant testified that's my signature, but I didn't prepare that tax return. And he did it using a photocopy machine. Now, you've been, again, covering Donald Trump for a long time, long before he became president. His presidency would surprise many people. So what was it about Donald Trump that made you pay so much attention to him before it seemed a possibility that he could become president? Well, Donald uh he got his hands on, through a complicated lease arrangement, a yacht from Adnan Khashoggi, the big arms dealer of the 70s and 80s. He renamed it the Trump Princess, and he only went on it once to go from New York City to Atlantic City. And when he got off, this was either in the fall of 88 or the early 80, 89, he gets off in the marina in Atlantic City and is walking to, up to the Trump Castle Casino. And there are teenage girls jumping up and down as if there was some rock star here. And the man shouts out, Donald, be our president. And I wrote about that in my first book, Temples of Chance, back in 1992. And, you know, I was stunned by this. In fact, in that book, I said, this is a man whose business would have made him a vice lord just a very few years before and was illegal in most of the country. And people were saying, be our president to a man who's in the business of owning casinos. And I realized there was something going on in American society that uh, I and my peers in the news business were missing. And and what was that? Uh, <clears throat> um, I Soon after that, when I went to the New York Times, I began documenting rigorously before anybody else was writing about this stuff, the growing inequality in America. And every year I would do multiple analyses of the new government data and uh, what we know now, in 2019, 90% of Americans had less income in, 19, in 2019 than they did in the mid-70s. Uh, and their health care has become much more expensive because back then, very few people had co-pays and they were nominal if they had them. They didn't have much, much if any, money taken out of their paychecks. Uh, far fewer people have pensions and they're not safe because Congress has allowed looting of these pensions. Their debt is through the roof. In fact, for every dollar of equity people added in their homes at one point, I calculated they took on uh, $2 of debt. Well, taking on $2 of debt to get $1 of equity is not a prescription for being prosperous. 
So a huge number of Americans are furious just over their economics. And I went to work every day. I took care of my kids. How come I'm worse off than dad and granddad? And you combine that with Donald's explicit appeal on a racial level. A whole bunch of people have said that when they've attacked minorities, both physically and verbally, well, Donald told me to do it. Donald gave me permission to do that. Same thing with the attempted coup back in January. And then you have this third group, evangelicals. Uh, Donald has been patted on the back and put forth as a Christian. Well, in one of his books, he writes for six pages denouncing Christians, denigrating them, calling them fools and idiots and schmucks, and saying in that book and in lectures that have been video recorded that he has a one-word philosophy of life. It is a word that is aggressively anti-Christian. Nobody who's a Christian can have his philosophy of life. That philosophy is revenge. So we have all sorts of people who are so angry about the country, who want women and minorities to know their place, and who are mad that they aren't better off financially, that they turn to this demagogue. Now, you have written three books about Donald Trump. The latest is the big cheat, and we're going to dive deep into that in a moment. I just think it's important for people to understand your long history in covering uh, Donald Trump, because his history is pretty fascinating as well, and your coverage of him is important. Um, did, did, did you dive into the history of his father, as well, and sort of the, I mean, one of your books is called The Making of Donald Trump, one of the trilogies. Well, I went into his father more in The Making of Donald Trump uh, than in this book. Um, <clears throat> but let me just lay that out, Mitch, very, very easily. And understand, Donald has called me on the phone, I don't know how many times, or yelled at me in public that he's going to sue me. And I always say, well, Donald, if you've got grounds, sue me. And he never does, because the one thing he knows is I don't write things I can't prove. That's why nobody's laid a glove on me in over 50 years of doing this. Um, Donald is the third generation head of a white collar crime family that stretches back to the 1800s. His grandfather was a pimp who worked in Seattle, Everett, Washington, and the Yukon Territory. Uh, His father, Fred, uh, uh, ripped off the U.S. taxpayers uh, in building government-subsidized housing for those GIs and sailors who came back from World War II. And uh, President Eisenhower threw a fit in the Oval Office over this uh, when he found out about it. I mean, think about it. Eisenhower sends all these young men to their deaths on Omaha Beach, and then he finds out some guy is making money off of uh, the, the plan to help the rest of them. Uh, I'm sure he did throw, show up, you know, throw a fit, as others have documented. Donald, as soon as he finished college, where he didn't earn a degree in economics, Penn gave it to him, uh, he searches out and makes a friend of the notorious Roy Cohn of the McCarthy hearings. And Roy Cohn's other clients were mobsters and a lot of celebrities. Uh, He's called Roy Cohn his second father, And he's always said he admired Roy Cohn because he was indicted for most of his adult life, but nobody ever convicted him of anything. And that he thought that was a really terrific thing. So Donald set out as a young man to, uh, you know, be essentially a white collar crook. And one of the stories I tell in the book is about how he physically assaulted twice Mayor Abe Beam of New York, who's a foot shorter and about 40 years older than Donald. 
and how the police had to remove him from the mayor's office over this. But it's indicative of, of Donald's behavior. He, when he was a, a, a kid, he used to throw little rocks at a baby in a playpen along the street where they lived. And he called it, make the baby cry. He tried to get other kids to be involved. In it. I mean, he's, he's just been a monster like his father, Fred, his entire life. Yeah. And the Roy, the Roy Cohn story is very interesting. And hence, we get this term during the Trump presidency of where's my Roy Cohn? He was looking for somebody to, to play that role during his presidency, which perhaps he got uh, from uh, Rudy Giuliani. Yeah. And, and there's a very good documentary, by the, by the way, by that name. Uh, uh, where's my Roy Cohn? The other really good documentary was the one Donald suppressed with threats of litigation 30 years ago called uh, Donald Trump, Donald, what's the deal? Or Donald Trump, what's the deal? And so you, you say Donald Trump comes from a family of the three generations of white collar criminals. How is this played out with Donald Trump in the White House? Well, Donald Trump gets sworn in uh, in January. Uh, wonderful weather for January in D.C., unlike eight years earlier when Obama was sworn in, it was miserably cold. And he uh, gets in the motorcade after the ceremonial lunch at the uh, Capitol to go to the White House. And while Obama's crowds were curbed to building, packed like sardines <laughs> without the sild oil, uh, many places there were more guards and police than well-wishers. And about five blocks from the White House, the motorcade stops. Donald and the whole family get out. They take a two-minute turn on the sidewalk, I mean, on the street, and then they get back into the car. None of the TV networks made any connection about where he stopped. But every lobbyist with a brain in Washington, spies, foreign envoys, anybody seeking a favor, and me, among others, recognized he stopped in front of the new Trump Washington Hotel, which had just opened uh, about a month earlier. And the signal was obvious. You want a favor from this administration? You will pay tribute to Donald Trump. And very quickly, we saw the Kuwaiti government moved its uh, annual big event, basically thanking us for throwing Saddam Hussein out of their country, or as I tend to think of it, their business that owns a, a country. Um, they moved it to Trump's hotel. Um, the American president of T-Mobile, the German cell phone company, which wanted to take over Sprint, he made a big show of repeatedly going to the hotel, sending his executives there, and then the Trump administration approved his $26 billion favor, something the Obama administration had said no to because they thought it was anti-competitive. Uh, the Saudis take out two whole floors. And so it very immediately became clear to anybody, this is the place to see, be seen, and spend money. Now, that wasn't the only place. Uh, people went to his Doral Country Club, which is near the airport in Miami. Uh, they went to uh, his Bedminster, uh, New Jersey golf course, and other locations. But everybody understood, you want a favor from Donald, you got to pay up front. And they did. And Donald, at the same time, how did everybody understand that? Well, if you're sophisticated enough to be in the business of seeking favors from the government, it, it, this is this is 101. This is obvious. I mean, they, by the way, they actually teach in colleges in Washington how to be a lobbyist now. 
I have friends who took the courses just because they were dumbfounded that they were their journalism friends. Um, Donald, at the same time, Mitch, set out to get every possible dollar he could from the government. Uh, you, you ever checked into a, a motel or a hotel and it'll, you paid $99 and you look at the card on the back of the front door, the law requires, and it'll say maximum rate $512. Well, that's the kind of price Donald charged for Secret Service agents and other government people to stay at his properties, which he went to about a third of the time. And when he met at Mar-a-Lago with Shinzo Abe, the Japanese prime minister, they set out for a photo op two glasses of water on the table, just, just as a prop for a photo. I have the invoice. Donald billed the taxpayers $3.15 for each glass of water. Uh, he, he was doing everything he could to wring money out of the taxpayers. And at the same time, uh, his family was out doing things. Two of his cabinet officers, there were others, but I focus on two of them because they were so egregious. Uh, and lots of other people were just busy figuring out how do we line our pockets? They were setting up a kleptocracy. And surprisingly, in Washington, there was really great coverage out of Washington about the palace intrigues. But my little news organization that friends and I run, uh, DC Report, our, our managing editor, in fact, is in, San, is in San Francisco, with a budget of less money in a year than the New York Times spends in a day. We broke story after story after story that was right there in front of people because they were busy getting access to sources. They weren't reading documents. And most of all, they were being told by other people through press releases or what are leaks. Here's what's news. And we were going, no, we sit back and make our own judgments. And we just kept turning up stuff. It wasn't, it wasn't even hard to do. So there's several things there you laid out that the president did to line his own pockets during his presidency. Let's go back to the one of people wanting access to the president to garner his uh, I guess his good intentions, hence would use his hotel and have events at his hotel and stay at his hotel in Washington, D.C. Was there anything illegal about that? Well, um, I think all of his operating of his business uh, raises legal questions. But when presented to judges, they all ran away from it. every federal judge. Didn't matter who appointed them. They all found a way to delay and then run away. Um, the Constitution, remember, we live in the second American Republic, the first one failed, has two emoluments clauses. And the President of the United States is not to receive any emoluments, that is, gain, profit, income, from any of the states. Think how much you could corrupt a presidency if California said, hey, Donald, here's $100 million. Now we want this law passed to do bad things to Nevada, Arizona, and, and uh, Oregon. And you can't take it from any foreign power. So when the Saudis run out rooms at the top rate, when a candidate for vice president of Nigeria, with whom we have, a, you know, the most populous country in Africa, with whom we have enormous trade because of the oil business, shows up, how is he not violating the emoluments clause? And on top of that, the lease for the hotel, and I have a whole chapter about this, and you don't have to know anything about contracts, real estate, or anything else to see this chapter. It's a, it's a farce. It's, it's a, a political farce. The, the lease he had for the 
building, which is a federally owned building, said no employee of the government can participate in the lease. This goes back to a scandal in 1808. And I tell the story of how the bureaucrats found a way to see no evil, hear no evil, and just look the other way. They were sightless sheriffs. And it's, it's really a good example of why we need to pay attention to the elected officials, because bureaucrats as a class are not people known for stiff spines and courageous action. Uh, that's why we honor the whistleblowers among them. And they got the signal. You know, the new president has this deal. He's not supposed to be there. Just don't open any document that will tell you about this. And, and it really is a, a, a remarkable comedy, dark comedy, a dark farce of what happened. And what I try to do in the book is, Mitch, this is very important to understanding it. So many things went on in the Trump administration that nobody could track them all. And that includes me. And this was my life for the whole period. I set everything else aside except my teaching at the Syracuse University Law School. And there would be an article in the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post or the LA Times and then it would disappear. So basically, you end up with all these loose threads. Many people never heard of the various threads. And yet what I did by studying was realize these are all connected. So I took all these loose threads and I weave them together into a tapestry so that you can see all of this is connected. All of this is part of a scheme. And I mean that in the derogatory uh, sense of scheme, not the British sense. All of this was, was a scheme to profit off the government to turn the government to Trump's personal will, to punish anybody who stood in their way, and to submarine anything that stood in the way. American national security, the health and welfare of little children, uh, pollution, didn't matter. You get in the way of what we're doing for ourselves and our friends, because you can't just take everything for yourself. The, 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 the corrupt leader always has to share with all sorts of other people, so he has a power base. And once other people participate with the leader in something like this, they're compromised. And I lecture, I'm a former president of investigative reporters and editors, and I lecture all over the world to journalists. And one of the things I tell them is never take anything but a cup of coffee or a glass of water, because those are, are courtesies. Because the moment you cut a corner, the moment you do the littlest unethical thing, doesn't matter how small it is, you are now vulnerable. And that's what Trump did. He systematically made people vulnerable. That's been his technique, one of his techniques, his entire adult life. It's one of the things Roy Cohn taught him. And in that, was there anything that was illegal? And I recognize what you said earlier. The courts didn't want to take up the emoluments uh, issues. But were, were, was the Trump White House able to work the system, get around it so that it was legal? Well, uh, we're into an area that's very gray, but that's an important, important point to make. America has very weak white collar crime laws, and our public corruption laws are similarly weak. They're full of defenses and difficult issues prosecutors have to bring. And uh, our Supreme Court, under Chief Justice Roberts, has been legalizing extortion and bribery of public officials. The governor of Virginia, McDonald, he and his wife were given the use of a Ferrari, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in gifts, jewelry, shopping sprees. In, re and, and in return, prosecutors said, 
uh, the governor was moving the state bureaucracy to give this guy, put, giving him all this money, what they wanted. And our Supreme Court astonishingly said, well, if you can't prove an exact direct quid pro quo, here, here's a Rolex watch, sign this document, then there's no crime. And complete lack of recognition of how this works in the real world. I mean, I've been covering corruption since I was a teenager and a front page staff writer at the San Jose Mercury. And the world doesn't work the way John Glover Roberts uh, wrote. Of course, he also, you know, famously killed the most important section of the Voting Rights Act because he said, oh, well, you know, in the South, there's no more discrimination against black voters anymore. Uh, So. The problem is we need laws and regulations and uh, uh, determined policies if we're going to prevent this from happening again. And in the end of the book, I write solutions. There are a whole bunch of actually very easy to implement solutions if we just have the political will to do it. And we've got to recognize that we were actually lucky in the view of, of people I've talked to in Europe, particularly. They're like, oh, so you have a crazy person who's a criminal in the White House. That's been going on here in Europe for hundreds of years. You know, we got 44 presidents who you may hate their policies. I mean, who would like in modern world Andrew Jackson's murderous policies? But he was doing what he thought was best for the country. Nobody in the White House before did anything beyond you know, some petal, petty venality. Uh, there were always, you know, brothers and cousins and hangers on who were trying to profit off the White House. But presidents themselves behaved it understood that this is an office of public trust. To Donald Trump, there is no such concept. It doesn't mean anything to him. He has no moral standards. Whatever he does is right. And in fact, he said at one point, I have an Article 2 in the Constitution that says I can do anything I want. Go read Article 2. It doesn't say anything within a million miles of that. But Donald, who's never read the Constitution, who doesn't know anything about it, He just seized upon, oh, I can do anything I want. He thought of himself as a king, and he wanted to be our dictator. And six years ago, I said this, and I couldn't get my former employers, the New York Times and the LA Times, to talk about it. Uh, I did get on MSNBC and CNN uh, observing this and Democracy Now!, and your radio show, but but very few places, and and it wasn't addressed seriously. And I was told by a bunch of uh, leading politics journalists, you know, man, you're way out there. What do you mean he's not going to leave the White House peacefully? I said, you don't know the guy. I do. Well, guess what? He didn't leave the White House peacefully. And every day, the January 6th committee is finding more and more evidence that this was a plot that had weeks of time going into it. Well, you write in your book, he also made money off of that. You, well, you you write that Donald Trump makes makes money on challenging the election results. Yeah, no, I, it, it took a second. I'm sorry. Um, so uh, once uh, Donald lost the popular vote and the Electoral College, a lot of things were set in motion, including the attempted coup. But Donald immediately saw this as a money making opportunity. Um, I currently get between three and eight emails or texts a day. Uh, Don Jr., uh, last night I spoke with my father, and you are the only person in America among our supporters who didn't send a check in response to my appeal yesterday. Apparently there are people dumb enough to believe that sort of nonsense. Donald said, I need money to stop the steal. 
and people sent money. And he's raised so far, we don't have the latest report yet, but we'll get it early next year, probably close to a half a billion dollars. He spent $9 million on lawyers for Stop the Steal. He famously didn't pay Rudy Giuliani. Uh, he's now trying to claim Sidney Powell was never his lawyer. That's just laughably false. That other money, under our law, he can keep it. He can spend it on himself. Now, he's going to spend a lot of it on criminal defense lawyers once he gets indicted, and they expect there will be multiple indictments of him by state-level grand juries. But this the, he's our beggar-in-chief. Donald Trump's new job is beggar-in-chief. And hey, you don't have to work hard. You just hire people who are going to send out emails, and you pay them, and you get all this money. Wow. And Donald is a lazy guy. He's never been a hard worker his entire life. And one of the people he cheated that I tell about is a dying man in hospice named Stacy Blatt, if I recall his name correctly. He heard Rush Limbaugh say, you know, Donald needs your money. He needs to stop the steal. The man, his income is $1,000 a month. He sent $500 to Donald Trump. Well, he's a true believer. How generous of that man. The next thing he knew, the Trump uh, fundraisers had tapped his bank account again and again and again and again until he had nothing. Did he do a recurring a pay payment and, and just didn't realize it? That Well, what happened is they put in an opt-out clause that you would be tapped continually unless you saw the fine print way down in the document. This is how the white-collar Trump crime family cheats people and steals. And it wasn't just Stacey Black. Thousands and thousands of people had this happen because that's to Donald Trump, there's nothing wrong with that. Now, they ended up having to give a lot of it back, and I think they should have been all criminally prosecuted for this. Of course, if you tried to indict Trump for it, he would say, well, I had nothing to do with it. These people were running it. Well, that's fine. Let's get all the people who were running it. Uh, they belong behind bars. They are criminals. And they were using this little technical device. No, fraud is everywhere and always a crime, and this was fraud. David K. Johnston, I would imagine someone who is listening to us right now may be thinking, well, I, I, I could believe all of that. But what about, say, Joe Biden and Hunter Biden? Hunter Biden, who was on the board of a gas company in Ukraine, who didn't seem like it was appropriate for him to be there, but he probably was there because his dad was vice president uh, at the time. I mean, is it just you said earlier no one has used the White House like Donald Trump to enrich himself. But, but so, so, Mitch, there, there's a, a chasm of difference here. What Hunter Biden did is absolutely wrong. And his father has said so, OK, quite clearly. But, you know, uh, Billy Carter, Jimmy Carter's brother, Jimmy, Jimmy Carter never never took a nickel. He put his peanut warehouse, a two-bit little business into a trust because people said, oh, he could manipulate the agriculture stuff to make, make profit, end up losing over a million dollars on that. Uh, Richard Nixon's brother, uh, Donald, he did the you know, same sort of thing, trying to make money off the White House. Every president of the United States has people around them who are grifting, taking advantage, and they almost always turn out to be people like uh, Hunter Biden, uh, who, in contrast to his brother, you know, military officer, attorney general. Uh, he has been, he's a drug, he's a drug addict. 
Uh, he's had a terrible life. He's made just one bad decision after another. That doesn't make Joe Biden a crook. And there's a lot of stuff about this laptop of Joe Biden's. The Wall Street Journal, a owned by Rupert Murdoch, who also has Fox News, uh, was the first place to get onto this story. It was brought to them by uh, uh, people who are critical of Joe Biden. And they put some of the best investigative reporters in America on this. And they dug, they had a basically a bottomless budget. And they concluded you know, there's something wrong with this story. And it's since come out that there's phrases and language that suggest someone who's not a native English speaker, but would likely be a native Russian speaker generated some of the material on this laptop and that this was uh, Russian disinformation. And we have very good reason to believe that. I mean, the very few people I think know that the opening line of the Mueller report is uh, the Russian government engaged in systematic, intensive efforts to interfere in the U.S. presidential election in 2016. I think that's almost word for word. And later, Mueller discloses to Congress uh, when he's testifying under oath that he wasn't allowed to investigate what we all thought he was investigating. He was barred from that. So they took this little tiny keyhole they were given and did the best job they could. But that that Donald Nixon did bad things doesn't say anything about Richard Nixon. That Billy Carter did bad things doesn't say anything about Jimmy Carter. If Jimmy Carter had been helping his brother, then I'd say, wow, that's uh, that's a whole different uh, can, of, can of beans. And in this case, Donald Trump brings his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, uh, and his daughter, who is Kushner's wife, Ivanka, into the White House. Uh, they, they had to file repeatedly their national security clearance papers. And you, you file something to work in the White House called an SF-86, in fact, in many, many jobs throughout the government. One mistake is likely to get you thrown out. You can explain when you didn't know something or didn't understand saying maybe you can get by. Two mistakes. Everybody I've talked to in national security says nobody ever gets approved after that, except guess what? Jared and Ivanka did, even though they were uh, unable to properly fill out the forms. Their financial disclosures that are required of all high-level federal officials, they didn't even match up. They didn't even coordinate their, their, what they were doing about their assets and their liabilities. And Jared Kushner uh, had, was in terrible financial trouble for he and the entire Kushner family, who are, by the way, mirror images pretty much uh, culturally of the Trumps. He had bought 666 Fifth Avenue, a high-rise building in Manhattan near Trump Tower. He grossly overpaid for it. The 2008 economic collapse came along. The value of the building, which was almost 100% borrowed money, collapsed to perhaps as little as a third of what he paid. He paid $1.8 billion, certainly to less than half. He goes to the government of Qatar when Donald Trump is on his way to the White House and says, hey... Um, Loan us $800 million. That'll bail me out. And the Qataris said, uh, we're not stupid. We're rich, but we're not stupid. No, thanks. Qatar is home to America's most important military base in the Middle East. It's where the operational center of central command is located. They're our ally. Donald Trump, as soon as he becomes president, begins attacking the Qataris. And pretty soon, the Saudis and the Emiratis, who hate the Qataris, bail out. Jared Kushner, 
$800 million bailout of Jared Kushner. Later, Jared Kushner's family gets 18 sweetheart mortgage loans under terms, I don't care how wealthy and well-financed you are, nobody would make you these loans from uh, with federal loan guarantees. They're 10-year interest-only loans on just crappy properties. The, the Kushners are slumlords. They're, they, they run the most horrible housing. And, and a judge issued, I think it was a 251-page decision going after them over their slumlord conditions, to which they say, no, no, we run fine apartments. Yeah, 251 pages in the judge's opinion. So this is the, the, the all organizations take their cue from the top. My wife's the CEO of a charitable endowment she built up from basically nothing to $600 million. She's Caesar's wife. She is doesn't do anything anybody could criticize her for on ethical grounds. And her whole organization, therefore, is just like that. Everybody takes their cue from the top. Well, when the president of the United States says, oh, boy, let's see how much money we can get. Guess what? That's what everybody else does. There were 44 presidents before Donald Trump. Are there no examples of any of those 44 presidents using the presidency to enrich themselves? Um, there's some petty venality along the way. Um, Richard Nixon bought a broken down water, uh, ocean view property in Orange County. And uh, Wally Turner, who for 20 years was the New York Times guy in San Francisco, back in the 70s, showed that taxpayers had spent a fortune fixing the place up under the guise of making it secure for the president and for Secret Service. But really, they, they did everything from uh, putting in ice machines with the specific thing Trump liked. He liked those ice machines that produce rings with a hole in the middle, uh, ice donut. Um, but that, come on, that's penny ante sort of, of stuff. And there's some colorable argument that you were making the building secure and putting in electronics um, for the president. Um, we've had, you know, nobody ever suggested that Harry Truman took a dime. When he left the White House, there was no presidential pension, and all he had was his World War I Army pension. Uh, Eisenhower, same thing. Nobody ever suggested Dwight Eisenhower took a dime. His chief of staff took a Vicuna coat, famously. Uh, and lost his position as chief of staff over it. But no, we, ha we have not. In fact, uh, uh, a, a, an agent of Tammany Hall, the corrupt machine in New York in the late 1800s, Chester Arthur became vice president in the 18, uh, either late 1870s or early 1880s. The president died right after he came into office. Uh, Chester Arthur then becomes president and the guys from Tammany Hall come down to Washington and they go to the White House and they're rubbing their hands together and man, are we going to get rich? And Chester Arthur says, <clears throat> gentlemen, I'm now the president of the United States. I don't do that stuff anymore. Leave and don't ever darken the White House uh, uh, front door again. And we got the Pendleton Civil Service Act and other laws from him. The only person who ever looked at this job and, and had no concept of a public trust had never done a day of public service in his life, not one day, even, you know, being head of a blue ribbon citizens panel to fix something. Not one of them behaved like Donald Trump. And even when Donald Trump fixed Woolman Rink in New York, he told all the vendors, well, it's a pro bono project. So a whole bunch of people did work for either nothing or cost. Donald got a 10 million, got, got a huge fee. Of, I think it was $10 million, but he, he pocketed a lot of money by telling all these people it was public service. It wasn't. 
Tammany Hall is interesting now that you bring it up. And this is part of the democratic machine in the early 20th century in New York. Late, 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 more of the late 1800s, but into the 20th century for sure. Yeah. I mean, FDR had to contend with it early in his in his career as, as governor, if, if I recall correctly. Um, is, and, and so did Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah, fair enough. And Theodore Roosevelt was a Republican. Uh, is do, do you see any connection or are these just too far apart in time between Tam, Tammany Hall and the Trump family? Now, Tammany Hall eventually went away and there are historians who, you know, political scientists who've documented all that. Uh, that doesn't mean New York politics isn't corrupt. You know, uh, San Francisco, New York, L.A., you know, there's not much difference. They're all full of, of corruption. Um, I remember well, 40 years ago when I was with the L.A. Times, the police chief of San Jose, uh, um, uh, Joe McDonald, McDonald uh, sitting in his office and looking at the hills to the north and saying, there are people who want to develop those hills, and I wonder if they do how many politicians I'm supposed to put in jail. <laughs> So, uh, but uh, no, I don't think, I think there are uh, historical arcs, but I don't see any direct connection in those things. Do you see Donald Trump running for president in 2024? Well, he's running right now as a practical matter. That's how he's raising money. And all these people are sending him money. When he is indicted, and he will absolutely be indicted by the Manhattan Grand Jury, uh, almost certainly on a state racketeering charge, an Article 460 crime in New York State, and probably will be indicted in Westchester County, just north of there, over property tax fraud, uh, perhaps by Letitia James, the elected attorney general of New York State, who has two investigations into him, maybe by the uh, attorney general of Washington, D.C., who's investigating what happened to the money from the inaugural and the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, which overlays Atlanta. Once he's indicted even once, that changes the whole ballgame. It's pretty hard to run for president while, you know, you are facing trial, and maybe he'd be in trial right at the time of the election. So what I expect is he will find an excuse to leave, just as he did in 2012 when he said he was running. The politics reporters all acted as if he was serious, and only Lawrence O'Donnell at MSNBC and yours truly were saying, no, he's running for a new contract for his TV show with NBC. And then Donald got the new contract. And you can go back and watch the YouTube video where he says, I should be president. The country needs me. No one else could be president. But, but right now, my TV show needs me more. And of course, the politics reporters all had egg on their face because they'd been swindled by Donald Trump. So... He's running in the sense that he's raising money and stuff now, but the reality is that's not going to happen. And even if he isn't indicted, I don't believe this time around he can get into the White House. There are lots and lots of angry people. The only way he can get in the White House is all these efforts by Republican state lawmakers to enact laws that let Republicans throw out votes they don't like. And one of the things, Mitch, that just came out yesterday the January 6th committee has a PowerPoint that the that Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, gave them, uh, Donald Trump's chief of staff, and it lays out a plan to have the military step in to count the ballots. Well, of course, the military reports to the commander in chief. Uh, we're right now in the middle of, oh, hi, this is Belarus. It used to be called America, but 
the military will count the ballots as directed by the commander in chief. So I, I, I don't, I, I was terrified in 2015, Donald would get to the white house and said so. And a lot of people mocked me about that. Um, and this time around, I don't think he can get back in unless they steal the election. And remember, Donald Trump projects. If he tells you something you did is, is bad, he's talking about himself. Let's get into audience questions. And again, for folks who are watching us on YouTube in the uh, comments section, you can get your question in. The first question we have from the audience is, how afraid do you think the media is? of offending or alienating diehard Trump supporters? I, don't, I mean, I don't see any evidence of that. I, I see that the coverage, if anything, got tougher as time went along. During the campaign, uh, uh, the, the view of New York journalists, especially at the Times, was everybody knows Donald Trump's a crook. We don't need to spend time going into that. Well, no, people in Keokuk, Iowa, think he's a business genius. It was, it was hubris beyond belief. But I haven't seen anybody cower and move away in their coverage. Uh, you haven't seen Trump succeed in getting any journalists fired. And he's tried, you know, get me fired for, for forever. So um, I don't, Mitch, I, 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 I don't see any evidence people are afraid of him. I see a lot of reporters who don't understand how government works. They cover politics. And the problem is that uh, they don't really understand the mechanisms that are going on here, how votes are counted, how state elections officials work, uh, how audits work. And that that's a much, much bigger problem. I think that's a result in a de decrease of money towards journalism. Well, the fastest disappearing job in America, white collar job in America in this century is journalists. Uh, newsrooms today have less than half the number of journalists they had uh, just 10 years ago. Uh, the days of uh, flying first class everywhere when I was at the L.A. Times, those, <laughs> those are long gone. Um, on the other hand, you know, the New York Times has a bigger news staff today than it did when I was there. And we've seen remarkably good reporting. The L.A. Times has been revived and, and really become a, a terrific newspaper. Uh, the Wall Street Journal has been doing good work. Bloomberg, AP, Politico, um, so budget constraints play a big role, but the deeper problem is that, that too many journalists didn't take courses in uh, how government works, in public administration. And the reward in Washington isn't for covering government agencies, even though those are crucial to your life. Instead, it's for covering the palace intrigues, which is not that hard to cover, frankly. Next audience question is this. What has happened with the New York criminal cases against Trump, what should we expect in the coming months? The district attorney of Manhattan, Cy Vance, is, did not run for another term. Uh, the new district attorney has been very careful not to create a prejudicial complaint opportunity for Donald, but I think it's pretty clear he will continue to pursue the case. Uh, Donald spent years delaying turning over his accounting and business records, which is a standard thing in a, in a, in a, a tax investigation and a business record. New York has really tough business, falsification of business records laws. Twice he took it to the Supreme Court. When they finally got the documents, it had been thought they'd be a million pages. Now, it was five million pages of documents. 
the prosecutors have to go through all of that before they shape their case because they can't be surprised by anything at trial. The guy in charge of the case, who was a private lawyer who came back to work, was a federal prosecutor who used the federal RICO statute very successfully in the, uh, the Department of Justice, went into private practice, wrote the most important treatise on the federal law as a defense lawyer. He is the far and away the expert on RICO statutes. There's going to be an indictment. It's going to take time. Uh, the statute of limitations will not run for anything you can show as an ongoing conspiracy. So they may not be as worried as they think. And I think they've only made one misstep so far. They indicted the Trump organization, which is 100% owned by Donald, and his chief financial officer, Alan Weiselberg. All sorts of news reports by reporters who didn't read the law themselves but counted on other people telling him something said, oh, Alan Weiselberg's going to flip now because he can get 15 years in prison. They'd read the statutes. They would know that every single charge against him has no mandatory prison sentence. A man in his 70s like me with no record convicted of a crime, you're not going to get prison time. You're going to get, at worst, house arrest and probably probation. So, of course, Alan Weiselberg didn't flip. They didn't think that went through carefully in their effort to flip him. And that's clearly what they were doing. Next question. You mentioned the Koch brothers as being like Trump. Can you say a few words about the Koch brothers and how they were corrupt? Well, the Koch brothers are very different than Trump in a very important way, and they don't like Trump, uh, the two best-known ones, one of whom has died. The Koch brothers seriously believe their stuff, and and they have, have been consistent pretty much, I mean, much more than almost anybody else in public life in pursuing it. Now, there's a third Koch brother I have a chapter about in the book. He lives one door away from Mar-a-Lago. He belongs to the club. And um, I got a thousand pages of his company's internal business records. He's taking in a hundred to two hundred million dollars a year and paying no income taxes under what we just call flat out a sham and a fraud. I'm not worried about him suing me. In fact, he's had no complaint about my story. But he was under criminal investigation by the IRS. I have an email proving he was under criminal investigation. He supported Donald Trump's campaign. He ran a, I think it was $175,000 event. You had to pay that much to just to meet Donald up in Massachusetts. And about two months after, or I guess four months after Donald was in the White House, the criminal investigation by the IRS just went away. It just stopped. This was a slam dunk case. And people want to really understand how the super rich in America get away with stuff and why it matters that the IRS staff has been decimated. They, th this chapter will, will, it'll make your blood pressure go up, uh, that somebody can, can collect that kind of money and, you know, his friend gets in the White House. I'm sure the, the lawyer who brought this case in this matter uh, on behalf of a whistleblower, believes Donald Trump told the IRS, get off this guy's back. I, I don't believe that. I, knowing the IRS and having covered it for years, they're smart bureaucrats. The minute this uh, Donald Trump came to the White House, they went, gee, there's no upside for us in going after the president's buddy. It's just like the Washington Hotel. So they looked the other way and said, we have lots of other criminals we can go after. Next question. Were you surprised by how Trump handled losing. Did you predict it or were you shocked by January 6th? Oh, in, in 
I predicted in 2015 that Donald Trump would never leave the White House peacefully. And I was heavily criticized by people at the time, including some TV producers who said, you know, I'm not sure we're going to book you again if you say things like that. Um, uh, what I'm surprised about January 6th is how slowly, how long it's taken the House committee to move on this. This was a coup. And and every day, the, the witnesses, they apparently interviewed over 300 people and the documents they've collected. Uh, we're seeing bit by bit show that this wasn't in a spontaneous event. This was planned. That was a clown show coup. There's no question. But that's Donald. He's, he just, he, Donald isn't a businessman. He doesn't really know how to run things. Um, he doesn't understand his own businesses or his own taxes, for that matter. And so I, I was not surprised that we had the event. I was surprised at how, uh, how clownish it was. I mean, despite all, I don't mean to minimize the deaths of people who were there, the the traumatic injuries, the police officers, a number of them who've either committed suicide or quit over this. But this is not how revolutions we've all seen take place in other countries work. Uh, That surprised me a great deal, that it was not better organized and thought through. I think of a show we did many years ago with authors of a book called The Dictator's Handbook. I can't quite remember the name of the authors, but 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 I remember the argument they they made, and I always thought it was a very important one, is that no one can be a dictator on their own. You know, you can't say I'm now dictator and suddenly everyone's going to follow your lead. Uh, You need a circle of support in order to be able to pull that off, whether if it's the judiciary or if it's the military, whatever it is, you need a certain amount of support to be able to pull something like that off. Were you surprised? It seem, and it seems like Donald Trump was not able to get that kind of support. Were you surprised by that? Well, he he had support to the extent that he put lots of people who were compromised into various agencies and, and heads of them. In the previous book, it's even worse than you think. I show how uh, the guy he put in charge of the EPA forced the bureaucrats to write detailed memos on the weaknesses in the clean water laws. And then the documents disappeared and presumably were given, of course, to the polluters. So if they're ever taken to court and they destroyed documents, which means they destroyed the chain of evidence to prove people were polluting. Um, Donald built up, though, a coterie of people around him who were compromised. But, you know, why is it that dictators over time eventually turn to killing people around them? Well, paranoia. Who can you not trust? Who's trying to overthrow you because it's an illegitimate, illegitimate system that's based solely on power? Uh, Donald doesn't have the cojones to kill people. Uh, it's just, you know, he's, 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 a, uh, he's a bully. And like all bullies, he's a coward inside. Uh, but he's real good at putting on a show of, of screaming and yelling. But you're absolutely right. To- well, he was even hesitant to, to uh, call for and order military attacks overseas. Yes, and 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 here at home, he used the military against people peacefully demonstrating, you know, up, up, not not uh, quietly but boisterously outside the White House. And General Milley was it was the thing that apparently really woke General Milley, the head of the the Pentagon, to how dangerous Donald Trump was. Uh, and I said back in 2015 that if Donald Trump gets in the White House, you can bet that every senior military commander in the U.S is going to be rereading 
the uh, military code of justice on not following an unlawful order of the president for which you can get shot and how to get around that. Um, so uh, uh, none of these are simple issues, uh, Mitch, and, and they're all gray. But in Donald Trump's case, it's a really dark gray on almost everything you look at. I don't mean to get us too off topic here, but just following up on that, it did seem to me for all the th negative things we could say about Donald Trump, he was more hesitant about using military force than yes. previous presidents. Would you agree with that? And if so, did that surprise you? Well, Obama was also quite surprisingly hesitant about doing this. And he, remember, wouldn't pull out of Afghanistan because he was afraid of the criticism. Same thing happened with Lyndon Johnson in Vietnam. There were advisors who said, get out. And Lyndon couldn't bring himself, Lyndon Johnson couldn't bring himself to do that. But yes, you're quite right. Uh, Trump, who has no military experience, uh, uh, you know, he went, his father sent him to a boarding school because he was being a, a, a jerk and being violent to people to straighten him out. Uh, a military school known for hazing and sexually hazing uh, new boys. Um, but he, he has no sense of this stuff. You'll recall he ordered a Tomahawk missile strike in public in front of other people at Mar-a-Lago um, on a Russian military base in Syria. Of course, after we called up the Russians and said, uh, we're going to hit you in 90 minutes, so you better fire up your planes and get them out of there and put your people in trucks and move them out of there, and nobody died in that thing. Um, uh, Donald is not somebody who has the stomach or the resolution to do it. He would never have approved the, or he would never have ordered up nor approved the mission in which Osama bin Laden was uh, killed. But they, but he did order the mission that killed uh, Abu Bakr, the head of ISIS. Yes, I, I agree. But that was a much lower risk sort of, of operation. I mean, you remember the night that the Donald Trump was made fun of at the gridiron dinner in Washington, the one the journalists go to or Washington journalists. And uh, Obama said with Trump sitting there, you know, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to deal with such weighty decisions as do I fire meatloaf? And Trump couldn't take the joke. I mean, it was you or me. We'd laugh and go, OK, uh, Donald was furious about this and came up with his birther nonsense. And what at that very night was going on was, are we going to go or not go that night to kill Osama bin Laden? And that would be the end of Obama's presidency had it gone wrong, as with Jimmy Carter's failed rescue attempt of the Iranian hostages in uh, when he was president. And the, the, the calm, steely resolve of Obama compared to Donald who just spews out whatever is on his mind at the moment uh, is, is remarkable. He is not a leader of men and uh, uh, he doesn't have, he, if, if Donald had been drafted in the Vietnam war, if he hadn't gotten his bone spurs letter from the doctor who was indebted to his father and he had gone to Vietnam, I've had a number of friends of mine who served in Vietnam say to me, you know those stories that are true about junior officers whose troops fragged them because they were certain that the incompetent lieutenant was going to get them killed? That would have happened to Donald Trump. I do want to ask you about Donald Trump and the Republican Party. I do think we can say Donald Trump seems to have successfully taken over the Republican Party. 
And as I say that, I, I think if the presidential election was held today and it's not held today and a lot can change between now and when we actually do have a presidential election. But if it was held today, I think maybe the only Repu- only uh, Republican that Joe Biden could perhaps beat right now would be Donald Trump. And, and I would imagine that many Republicans would like to see Trump not be uh, their nominee come 2024. But how do you think this all plays out? Well, um, there is no Republican Party anymore. I mean, the Republicans, uh, they were the party of law and order during Nixon, right, which was really cover for racist policies. The Republicans were told in stories in California newspapers in 1970, at least, and maybe before that, the demographics of the country and of the state particularly are changing, and you've got to change your policies. They can't because of who they are and what they believe in. And this is the Trump-publican party. It's his party. And the people who stand up to him, they're just mowed down. I mean, Jeff Flake is a founding family of Arizona politician and, and, and a serious libertarian. And he knew that he would lose a primary if he ran again in Arizona. So he stepped aside. And Donald Trump is in, is in if not outright control, he certainly is uh, uh, heavily influencing what's going on with the Republican Party all over the country. And all pretense about uh, what they're up to is just being thrown away day by day. And it becomes clear this is just about power. Uh, there have been a number of public statements in the last 48 hours that I was uh, for a column at DC Report I'm working on that uh, talk about, you know, it, it's the, if, if we have to steal elections, basically, they're saying in code, then we'll steal elections. Uh, I do agree with you that if Biden had to stand for election today, if we had a parliamentary system, I think he would be out which is kind of amazing given how well the economy is doing. Um, All sorts of people I've seen post on the internet. I jousted with someone here where I live in Rochester, New York. So this is the worst inflation since World War II. Uh, No, Uh, 20% inflation in 47, um, 15% inflation in the early 80s. I mean, a whole whole bunch of bouts higher than the current uh, temporary inflation caused by the pent up demand. Remember during the pandemic, Lots of people, I'm one of those uh, fortunate to do this. My income didn't fall, my expenses did. I'm better off after the pandemic. But people who are manual laborers, uh, work in hotels, restaurants, this has been devastating to them. And uh, a lot of those people are angry and they've now uh, are being encouraged to put their anger on Joe Biden. Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio, a Republican, He gave a press conference, I think, two days ago, where he said, we are not going to, as Ohio Republicans, go through with any of this defunding the police. The Democrats want to defund the police. We are putting X million dollars into our police. Uh, He was talking about Biden's infrastructure bill, which every Republican in the state, I believe, maybe save one, voted against. They become shameless about this stuff because Donald Trump has taught them All you have to do is lie and keep up with the lie and never concede, and you can get away with it. David K. Johnston, thank you for joining the Commonwealth Club of California. Mitch, thank you very much. David K. Johnston, we thank for joining us today and discussing his new book, The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. We'd also like to thank our 
audience for watching and participating live with us. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash events. I'm Mitch Jezrich. Thank you. Stay safe and stay healthy. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.